have your Bible, join me in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 is where we'll be at. This morning, I just want to share my heart with you a little bit. We started last week talking about parenting. We've been looking at the family. Um, One of the things that you have to be mindful of, to be a parent is not necessarily difficult, meaning to become a parent is not hard. To be a parent is quite a challenge. Because of the way God created us, because of biology, becoming a parent is not just something that is not hard to do. It is something that's enjoyable. And so as a result of that, there are plenty of people around the world who have become parents. But being a parent to that child is much more challenging. There's a lot more work that goes into that. But when you are a parent, you recognize that the joy of being a parent is actually greater than the pleasure of becoming a parent. So so just think with me on that a little bit. Right now, Kara took the twins to the doctor on Friday. They got their five-month checkup and their shots and all that kind of stuff. And one of the questions that the doctor asked, you know, on their milestone chart is, are they laughing out loud without any kind of trying to get them to respond, just on their own? And I'm thinking, no, but I don't know that any of our kids have just randomly laid there and laughed. <laughs> but, but now it's like our goal to try and... Work it so we can then walk away and make them laugh. So like any sound, we're like, see, they're laughing. And and so now we have just, over the last couple of days, played with the the twins more in making them and getting them to laugh. And at that moment, that pure, innocent, without any kind of, of outside bad, just that pure laughter of a baby, that joy is irreplaceable. But then that continues to grow. And so, you know, my oldest now is eight, and so I don't understand all of the experience of that. But from testimonies of others and from my own parents' input, I recognize that parenting and loving your child and watching your child grow and watching them come into a stage of their teen years and adulthood, the joy of that relationship can be so great and yet the world tends to emphasize all of the wrongs along the way it starts with the terrible twos and then it moves on to those rebellious teen years and then it just keeps kind of pulling apart the relationship with parents and children when you become a parent if you don't work at parenting then that relationship can become as much if not more of a place of soreness than joy. How many of you would say, and I really, I want to see your hands because I want to make sure I'm not the only one. When you were expecting your first child, someone came to you and said something to the effect of, man, your life is about to be over. Does anybody else hear that? Okay, so I see several videos of you. All right. And I, they just drive me nuts, you know, and especially after I had kids. And I will tell people, if you ever hear anybody say that, they're so wrong. Your life is about to be completely different. Okay, nobody argues that. Your life is going to be different. And if you try to keep your life the same, it's going to frustrate the stew out of you. Okay, but, but when you recognize my life is not over, it's just different. But when people have that mindset of your life's about to be over... 
if they don't embrace the parenting and they miss out on the joy. When you recognize to become a parent and then to be a parent are two different things. And you embrace being a parent. It makes a huge difference. And the joy that is out there is great. I have seen both. And you have too. I have seen parents who didn't embrace parenting. And it was a great frustration to them. And even as they went through life, their kids became a frustration to them. Sometimes I wonder if I was that kid, you know. But anyway, that's beside the point. You, you, you just recognize that. And then you've seen the parents who embraced parenting, and parenting became a joy to them. There's no comparison. And so what I want for my family and what I want for your family is that you would embrace parenting at whatever stage you are in. We talked about last week how what we want is we want parenting with purpose. We want to establish in our lives as parents that we are going to parent with the clear purpose of accomplishing what God has called us to do. And we looked into Proverbs 22, verse 6. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And as we went through that, we said, train up a child. So that we said at the end last week, look, don't be satisfied with teaching. Train. Train your children. Work at developing them. Work at the process of here's what the Bible says. Here's what you're supposed to do in life. Here's how you do it. And we recognize you train someone to drive a car. You don't teach them. So train your children. So we began to work on that. We said, look, there's influence in your child's life. You should seek to be your child's greatest influence. You should work at it. You should focus on it. It should be the desire of your heart. It should be your goal, especially when they're little. As they get older, I recognize that influence gets smaller, but it doesn't go away. So continue to seek that influence. Look, someone or something is going to influence your child. Why not you? Why not let it be you that's the one that's having that influence? Go after their heart. Go after your child's heart. Don't be satisfied with just behavior. Don't be satisfied with a list of rules that they follow. Make sure that you get a hold to their heart. And we talked about that last week. And we said, look, there, there are four stages of parenting. And all of these change depending on which stage they're in. You, you start with that caregiver stage where they're just little and you're carrying them around and they can't do anything for themselves. And then you move into the cop stage where it's stop, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and you're trying to keep them from becoming felons early. You know, and so you go through that stage. And then you move into the coach stage where it's very motivational, corrective still in a large way, but very motivational and trying to get your kids doing what's right through those teens years early into their college years and then you move into that counselor stage to where you recognize and you sit back and you have influence through giving wise counsel in your child's lives many of us in here would say even at this stage of my life there are times when i know who has the right answer now a lot of times i know my parents well enough to know i don't even have to ask them because i know this is going to be their answer i also know sometimes i ain't got time to get my dad's answer because if i call it's going to involve four more phone calls in about three hours to get that answer and, and so you begin to learn but you still know you can go and you can get that advice so as parents we learn as we get to that stage to be wise counselors each one of those Though different in ability, you can't be a good counselor if you don't get your child's heart. 
You can't be a good counselor if you're not trying to have that influence. You can't be a good counselor at that stage of life. If you haven't worked at it along the way, it makes it easier. But if at that point you don't recognize your role. If you're a child in here, which all of us are, you would admit there have been times when mom and dad should be counselors and they're still trying to be cops in your life. And you're just going, no, dad, mom, no, you don't get that right anymore in my life. And what that does is that causes us to push away from our parents. So as parents, we have to recognize those stages and be wise in them. And as children, we also have to recognize that it's hard for mom and dad to let go of those stages sometimes. And so there's grace both ways there. But when we come to Scripture and we begin to look at the role of parenting and we look at this parenting with purpose, we begin to focus on how we are to go about it. Now, I want you to think with me this morning. All right. 1800s, so go back like 1800, 1801, 1802. You're living and you recognize there is a need to transport material across the country. You need to get stuff from seaports over, say, Norfolk area, and you need to get them across the country to other parts of the land. So you have to come up with a way to transport this material. So we're going to invent this huge machine that's able to move large pieces of material from one place to the other. We get this idea in our head. We decide, you know what? The best way to do this is to get it in as straight a line as possible to make it so that there's not a lot of interruptions to the transportation so we can get stuff across to where it needs to go quickly. What should we call this invention we're going to come up with? What's it called? A train. Why is it called a train? Because we put, it's, it's not called a hauler, it, it's called a train. Because you lay tracks and you set it on the tracks and it stays on the tracks. In the Blue Ridge Mountains, when you come down on both sides actually, but we lived on the west side. And there at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains on the west side, there were train tracks that ran all the way along kind of the base of the Blue Ridge Mountain. In part because there was a river there, so there was a flat area. It was easy to put train tracks in. But it helped move stuff from the north down through towards the south. There in Vesuvius, Virginia, it is a little map dot town. Meaning if you drive into the town, there is a sign, and I use the word town loosely, there is a sign that says your GPS does not work here. Right there when you go into the town. So there's no need to try. When you go into Vesuvius, you have to cross the railroad tracks. And right there as you cross the railroad tracks, there's a spot where there used to be a gas station. It's kind of closed down. And it was really more of a train stop than it was a gas station. And there's still remnants of the old boiler or the big water tank that was there. And it would swing an arm out over the steam-powered locomotives. And it would fill them up with water when they stopped in Vesuvius so they could continue on their way. So this train would run up and down these tracks right through Vesuvius. And it did for years. In fact, they still run the trains right through there. They just don't stop for steam anymore. Uh, so they, they run through this spot in Vesuvius. Floyd Grove grew up right there in Vesuvius. Now, the whole town of Vesuvius is probably about the size of our property. It's not, it's not a big area, okay? So it's a small area, but Mr. Floyd grew up there in Vesuvius all of his life, and he saw the train come through day after day, time after time, and, and he would go down and he would watch him as a child fill the thing up with water and the steam go rolling on, and he just loved the train down there. Well, growing up near the train, he got completely used to the train. 
The train just didn't in any way distract him. It didn't bother him. In fact, he built a house right off of the train tracks. And so he lived, his front yard went out to the train tracks, and that's where Mr. Floyd lived. And so he was there, and one night, now he's an adult, he's got kids of his own, he's in bed, the train comes through night after night, he doesn't hear it, doesn't wake him up, nothing. He wakes up one morning, he walks out his front door, and the train's right there. But it's not just sitting there. It's actually laying there. The train had jumped the tracks and was in his front yard and never woke him up. There had literally been a train that was on its tracks and it jumped the tracks and we call that what? A train wreck. It's a train wreck. And we use that phrase to refer to stuff to this day. Man, if some kind of a relationship's just all over the place, we go, man, that's a train wreck. When a train is on its tracks, it's right. When it comes off of its tracks, it's a problem, and it's a huge problem. Train up a child in the way he should go. Set him on his tracks. And when the train is on the tracks, it stays on the path that the tracks are laid on. When the train comes off the tracks, it's a huge problem. Call help. We need to fix this. This is dangerous. This is a big deal. If the track gets messed up, you've got to fix the track. But when a kid's trained and they jump off the track, we call that normal. We call it expressing themselves. We call it giving them freedom to figure out who they are. And society has come to the place now where when a child jumps off the tracks, where it's supposed to be completely normal. But when a train comes off its tracks, it's a train wreck. It's a problem. And we recognize it with urgency. Why? We don't get mad at the train. We fix it. So when it comes to training children, what we have to understand, the word train there in Hebrew, in Proverbs, has to do with to narrow the path and to set it. So you make the path very small so that you have to stay on the path. We take as parents and we train children. We set a path out and we get them on the path. Now, I genuinely believe there's not a one path fits all kind of system here. You train them in the principles of the Lord. You train them in the way of the Lord. You train them in the giftedness of the Lord. And you allow the Holy Spirit to help guide. But once you train, if they come off the track, you have to recognize there's now a need. There's now a problem. So as parents, we have to see this and we have to adjust to this. There are four types of parents. There's what's considered a neglectful parent. This is the parent who is low in love as well as low in control. They kind of let the kids do whatever they want to do. You've seen this person. Generally, you see them in the toy department. Generally, you hear them in the toy department at some store. Because you're halfway across the store and you can hear their kids screaming because they're not getting their way. So, low in love, low in control. Now, obviously, that's not 100% for every time you hear a kid scream. Because if you've got kids, your kids have screamed in public on you before and you're going, kid, what are you doing? Neglectful parent, low in love, low in control. There's the permissive parent. This is the parent who's high in love, low in control. So, they love their kids to death, but they kind of let their kids get away with everything. Because they love them, and in their mind, they love their kids so much that they're not going to correct anything that they do. Equally dangerous. 
Uh, this is a situation in which there can be a good relationship there, but there's so much freedom that the child ends up with a lot of scars and a lot of consequences from what the freedom has given them. Another step from there is the authoritarian. This is the low in love, high in control. This is the parent who lays down the law. And it is the law of the Medes and Persians in their house. And you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And the control factor is there. But the love is not. Most of the time, in Christian, historic Christian homes, the world looks at them as authoritarian-type homes, where there's all of this control, but there's no love associated with it. If you've ever been in that home, if you've ever been in that church, that is a miserable place to be. You end up here with rebellion so quickly. And then there is the authoritative parent. This is the parent who is high in love and high in control. These two are not opposites. Control does not necessarily mean restrictive. But the authoritative parent says, look, I love you too much to allow you to have to suffer the consequences of these actions. So that I want to get you on a path, I want to set you on the tracks that are going to eliminate the consequences of life that you're going to end up in if you don't follow the principles of Scripture. So the authoritative parent says, look, I am so determined to make sure that you learn and that you are trained and that you begin to walk in the ways of the Lord that I am willing to have moments in which you're upset at me because I'm more determined to be your parent than your friend. Job helps us understand how to do this a little bit. You're in Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So here's a man who was a, a complete individual. He walked with the Lord. He was not sinless, but he was a good man by the definition of the community. He was a godly man in the definition of his relationship with the Lord. And he was a man who eschewed evil. He stayed away from doing wrong, and he feared God, so he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. So he has ten children. Whoo, bless his heart. All right, skip down to verse 4. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day. Now, one second, just so I don't lose you early. Where did they go to feast? Whose houses? Their houses. How old are these kids? Okay, they're adults. They are old enough that they have their own houses. So he recognizes now there is some freedom here, but there's still influence. And his sons went and feasted in their own houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Now, contextually here, the book of Job is going to be older in its context than all the Old Testament. So now the Old Testament records events previous to Job, but Job is a book that occurs before the Levitical law is given. So the burnt offerings that he's offering are going to go all the way back to the garden and stem from the time that the Lord taught directly. And so what he's doing here is showing an incredible walk with God in a time in which there was no written Bible for him to follow. 
So he goes and he offers these burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So he recognized their hearts might be getting away from God. And I want to make sure and keep pulling them back towards God. Now, the part of this that I want us to get a hold of is the very last four words. Thus did Job continually. There's this one event that it's recorded about. But it's not as if just this one time Job put all this interest into his kids. He did this continually. He was constantly looking out for the well-being of his children. He was concerned about them. He wanted to see them walking with the Lord. He wanted them to have the exact same thing he had, a fear of God and assurance of evil. He looked for it, he worked for it, and he was determined that his kids would walk in the Lord. Look, Job recognized something that you and I have to recognize. As parents, when it comes to working and helping my children... I have to continually focus at doing it. I have to work so hard and be so determined. One, I have to be consistent. It is something that I have to do, and I have to keep doing, and I have to keep doing, and I have to keep doing. If you want to get your kids off track in a hurry, don't be consistent. Anything in life you want to see the best results from, the way you do it is you're consistent at it. That's it. You want to become great at the piano? You got to practice. You want to become great at any sport? You got to practice. You got to keep working at it. You want to become great in any subject in school? You got to keep going at it. You may start off with a natural giftedness that puts you ahead of all of your peers at that moment. But you can be left in the dust by the one who will consistently work at it if you don't. You want to be healthier? Be consistent. You want to be more spiritual? Be consistent. You want to be a godly parent? Be consistent. Isn't it true that you could list the things in your life that you started and you are no good at today because you weren't consistent at them? I enjoy golf. I, I play a little bit. And when I say I play a little bit, I played eight years ago. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I play a little bit um, and, and I, I don't mind golf, but I learned early on, there are two things that it takes to be good at golf, time and money. And I didn't have either. So I decided I wasn't ever going to worry about being good at golf. But if you will get at it and you will be consistent and you will practice and you will work at it, you can get good at it. Consistency as a parent. I can go down. Yep. Not good at golf. Yep, not good at piano. Yep, not good at... And just keep going down the list. I got a pile of them of things I started and I'm not any good at. It's okay. I can live with that. The issue in my parenting most times is my consistency. I can't tell you how many times my kids are doing something that needs to be dealt with and in my heart I go, I just don't want to deal with it. I just don't want to deal with it right now. Consistency, constantly, continually is what Job did. Be comprehensive. When I say comprehensive, I, I mean the whole gambit. Don't just deal in your child's life with the things that irritate you. Look, all of us have button pushers. 
And you have one child who can really push your buttons, perhaps, and you have another child who doesn't. You have an adult child who, man, they made that decision, and you know it's wrong, and you've seen it, and, man, you can jump all over that. And you have another kid that you know is doing wrong, but because of their personality, you're kind of like, yeah, they'll figure it out. Comprehensive says, look, I'm going to consistently deal with this, but I'm going to look at all of it, and I'm going to deal with it as a whole. Sometimes, now look, sometimes as a parent, you have to learn to pick your battles. Because being comprehensive and looking at the whole of it, this may drive you crazy, but there's a bigger picture. I have one child who does one thing to me that drives me nuts. It is not a big deal. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It just irritates me. Okay, It just does. And I hate it every time they do it. And yet, I love them, and I look at the big picture of it, and what they're doing is not wrong. It's just something I don't like. And so instead of coming down hard on them, they love doing it, and to, just so you know, jumping up and hitting my shoulder. They just love to run by and jump up and tap my shoulder. It just drives me nuts. I don't know why. It just drives me nuts. I'm like, will you stop hitting me on the shoulder? It just drives me nuts. And I know you're going, isn't that silly? It is silly. So comprehensive says i love that child and i want that child to love me and so i let them jump up and tap my shoulder now i have made a rule they only get to do it once because it used to be like 27 times in a row and it's like okay you gotta you gotta stop that when you look at the whole and you begin to deal with all of it consistently now you're beginning to train if you train up an athlete you have to look at the whole of what endeavor they're in. It's the same thing with being a parent. Be continuous. Be continuous. Don't stop. Don't give up. Okay, well, now they've gotten to an age that. Now, just, just continue. Just keep after it. Don't let go. At the end of the day, a man who had a lot of influence in my life as, in the regard of parenting, he used to say, your dad, they're a child, you're bigger, you're stronger, you have more endurance. Stop giving up. Win. Do you play games with your kids and let them win? Do you play games with your kids and not let them win? Where Andy Griffith was on the other night and they did arm wrestling, so now Justice wants to arm wrestle all the time. I'm sorry, I'm not to the point yet where I'm letting him win. I'm just like, sorry, you're not winning, bud. This isn't happening. So he'll jump and he'll pull. and No, you're not winning. You're, you're not winning this. And, and I, Now, play checkers. Mariah and I have a rule when we play checkers. She gets to win one game. I get to win the next game. And that's, that's the way it goes when we play checkers. And so she knows which time she gets to win. And I will keep it close and I'll let her win. And I know which time it's my turn to get to win. And I normally try to finish that one quickly. You know, and it's, you just go ahead. Now, the day will come when she'll crush me, I'm sure. But you, you recognize there are times... But when it comes to parenting, you can't let them win. You have to continuously stay after it. And look, no parent will ever tell you that that's always fun. It, it, it's not like there's a joy in <laughs> It's more like <laughs> But you stay after it. And be corrective. Correction. Punishment is to get someone from doing wrong to doing right. Corrective is not punitive. It is restorative. So when we're dealing with children, regardless, be willing to correct them. As you're dealing with adult children, look, it's okay. 
as a counselor to help them understand this may not be the wisest thing for you. It's okay. Again, you have to be wise when you're older and your children are older. But as that counselor, it doesn't mean you don't have that influence. And especially when they're little, be corrective. Keep putting them back on the track. Keep fixing the track. Keep working on it. Don't let them get off track. Disciple your children to be Christians. As a parent, when I recognize that I have a responsibility to disciple my children, to train them, to help them walk in a way in which they are following Christ, that becomes one of my great burdens in life. Now, as a pastor, you want to talk about one of those things that will drive me bonkers? It's when someone will talk to me about, oh, discipleship, and I want somebody to disciple, and I need to disciple. And they got kids in their house that are all over everywhere. They don't listen to anybody, and they're terrible in their presentation of what's going on in that house. Disciple your kids first. Look, I recognize that there is a tremendous need for me for you, to help train and develop other Christians. It's what we are as church called to do. But it starts in your home. Don't be satisfied that someone else will disciple your children. You disciple your children. You work to make them good Christians. Serve the Lord together. Never make the Lord second place. Model what is important. I understand, so please think with me. I understand that coming to church does not make one spiritual. Okay, I, I understand that. But if church is somewhat important to you, it will be less important to your children, and it will be not important to your grandchildren. In my house, growing up, we went to church every time the doors were open. I went to a public high school. I played a sport at my public high school. I did not miss church to play a game at my public high school. I had a year in which I played a sport at my public high school and every single game, except for the tournament at the end of the season, was on Wednesday night. Not Sunday morning, Wednesday night. I did not go to a single game except for one, and it was an early game, and it was before the service began at our church, and it was right down the road from our church. The game went long, and I was late to church. I never did it again. And my parents didn't make me. It's because my parents had always taught me church is first place. I read an article the other day a friend of mine had posted. He said, church should be your excuse not to go do everything else. But we're good at every excuse not to go to church. What's important to you will be important to your children. Keep God important. And please, in that, I can't leave this out. In that, if it's just about coming to a building out of a legal mindset to mark off a list, that doesn't work either. It, it, church and God has to be important all seven days. And you come together to grow in the Lord and to help others grow. And you keep the reason behind it and the importance behind it. Read the Bible with your children. Talk about godly things. Lift the Lord up. Hey, sing about heaven with your kids. The more I sing about heaven, the better my heart is. Just period. And for whatever reason, 
the more and more there's a proliferation of music in the world today, even in church circles, there's less and less about heaven. Um, we don't have to forget about heaven. It is the blessed hope of the believer sing about heaven. We cannot lead our children where we refuse to go. You are to be a shepherd to your child's heart, and you are to guide them into the fields of green pasture. You are to lead them, and by leading, you go, and they follow. We have to be willing to work at guiding our children and don't refuse to go where the Lord would have us to go. One day our children will follow our example rather than our advice. I can make my children do things now. One day I won't be able to make them. And so what I want is to set an example that they can follow. Teach your children right from wrong. Help them to understand there's a difference. Help them to understand it is not right because daddy likes it. It is not wrong because it bothers daddy. It is right because God says it's right. It is wrong because God says it is wrong. The same Andy Griffith episode. We, they were teaching and there was some carnival guy and whatever. You know, my kids are like, oh, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. And so to correct it even at that moment was important. Rules without relationship always lead to rebellion. Don't excuse wrong behavior. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13, Eli was held accountable. God said, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Eli had influence in his children's life. He did not use it, and so God judged his house forever. Job used that influence. Aaron, in the Old Testament, when Nadab and Abihu offered uh, strange fire before God, God kills them. And at that moment, Aaron does not speak up. Scripture very clearly says that Aaron kept his mouth shut at that moment in Leviticus 10. He just said, I'm not getting in the middle of this because God's right, my kids were wrong. The goal of Christian families is not to raise well-behaved children. It is to mature Christ-like adults. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And one is so much easier than the other. And it's still not easy, but it's so much easier. To just make children behave? Isn't it amazing? The teachers that can make your kids behave when you can't? You can, and as a teacher, you, you can do it. You, you see these kids come into school, and mom and dad stand there and talk, and that kid is everywhere. Mom and dad walk out of the room, and it's sit down, and the kid does. You're going, and, and moms and dads will be amazed. They go, I don't understand. How do you get them to sit down? Because I expect them to. But children will respond well when the parent, the authority, recognizes it. But behavior can be accomplished. But when you say, look, what I want more than behavior is to mature them into Christ-like adults. Now that's a heart issue. Now that's a thinking issue. Now that's getting a hold of their brains and helping them grow. And so that one day when I am dead and gone, my kids understand not what dad would do, but what God would have them to do. As a parent, that's your goal. There are many things in life that are easy to do poorly. But they are much more difficult to do with excellence. It did not take me long as a parent to discover that it would be difficult to raise children. 
or excuse me, that it would not be difficult to raise children, but that it would be exceedingly difficult to do it with excellence. When we come to the place where we say, I want to train my child in the ways of the Lord so that they are, when they are old, they will not depart from it. It takes work. So the question is, is the train on the tracks this morning? If you go to Vesuvius, Virginia today, and you walk to the house that Floyd Grow lived in now 30, 40 years ago, and you go to that house, and you walk out in the front yard, you know what's not there? The train. Now, the train tracks are still there. And at some point today, there'll be a train run up and down that track probably a couple times. But the train's gone. Because the wreck was cleaned up. And it was put back on the tracks. It takes a lot of work. It's hard. There's damage, but it can be done. Regardless today, mom, dad, whatever stage you're at, caregiver, cop, coach, counselor, is the train on the tracks? And are you willing to do the work on you to invest in your child to help get that train back on the tracks? The thing in parenting I am most grateful for is the mercy of God. Because I mess up so much. But God, in his infinite mercy, still entrusted me with five little image bearers that I have a responsibility to help mature into adulthood. Are you keeping the train on the tracks?